Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova, everybody. Welcome. Hello and welcome to show 329. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello everyone, I hope everyone is fine and dandy. Tell you what's coming in today's show. We have, as it's titled, subtitled, Space Time Special. Yes, way to go Adam, thank you for putting this together. This is what's coming in. We have two stories and a bit of fact article. First short fiction is Karina Who Kissed Space Time by Indrapamit Das. Then we have the film talk by our very own Dennis M. Lane. Then we have a writer who I'm just getting so excited about, Charlie Jane Anders with the Time Travel Club. That's all coming on this week's Starship Sofa. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So this time of the kind of show, I normally want to just say, oh, by the way, blah, 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 blah. So what I'm thinking of doing, and I might not even do it, so you'll have to get the end of the show to do it. You know how... Me hut, yes, the, the workshop and all the kind of carry on and oh, excited. Well, I might talk about that right at the end, even past the outro music. Just I'll see how it goes because I don't want to kind of put it in here because this is a great show. Some oh, just amazing stories. So, we'll kick off straight away with our first short story, and it's by a writer who I didn't know about until Adam brought it to my attention and just. This is the kind of story, this is just hints at, oh, I don't want to say anything until we're going to get to the end of the story, but it's by a writer called Indrapamit Das, who is a writer and artist from Kolkata in India. His fiction has appeared in numerous publications, including Clark's World, Asimov's Apex magazine, as well as anthologies such as The Year's Best Science Fiction, 13th Annual Collection, the year's best SF-18, Aliens, Recent Encounters and Motherships, Tales from Afrofuturism and Beyond. He has work forthcoming in anthologies including Steampunk World and How to Live on Other Planets, a handbook for aspiring aliens. That's great, that. He is a graduate, grateful graduate of the 2012 Clarion West Writers Workshop and a recipient of the Octavia E. Butler Scholarship Award to attend the former 
He completed his MFA at the University of British Columbia and is currently in Vancouver working as a freelance writer, artist, editor, critic, TV extra, oh, game tester, would-be novelist and aspiring, aspiring to adulthood. He is represented by the Sally, Sally Harding of the Cook Agency. Follow him on Twitter at Indrapamit Das. I'll try and get Indra Pamit to come on the show as well. I'll have a little chat because, like I say, this it's just a short story, this. And, oh, man, just everything I like about these kind of short stories. Stories narrated by Raja Khanna. Raja is a graduate of the 2008 Clarion West Writers Workshop and a member of that New York-based writing group, Altered Fluid. His fiction has appeared or is forthcoming in Shimmer Magazine, Good, The Way of the Wizard, among others and has received honourable mentions in the year's best fantasy and horror and the year's best science fiction. He is represented by Joe Motti of the Barry Goldbait Literacy Agency. Not Bait, Goldblatt. There you go. So, sorry there, Joe. He sometimes writes articles for Tor.com and occasionally narrates for podcast sites such as Podcast Lightspeed and Pseudopod. Raja Oros also writes about wine, beer and spirits at fermentedadventures.com. Currently lives in New York. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Karina Who Kissed Space Time by Indra Pramit Das I always remember snow speckling the orange cone of streetlight that held my first kiss. It wasn't snowing that night. This was before time fractured, left me slipping through its cracks like a bead of water. Perhaps it had been snowing in some other timeline during that first kiss, but not that one. It had barely been a first kiss even, but it had been cold, cold enough to turn gutter water to slippery glass by our feet. The party over, we stood outside the arts house, on the frozen curbside corner of West James and North Pine. On the wooden stage of the porch, a sparse audience of smoking spectators, glancing at us from behind conversations. I was heading back to the International House. She was walking up Pine to her off-campus apartment, a sign of her status as a senior, a quiet reminder that she would be graduated and gone by the time I became a junior. When I returned to campus from India a week earlier, I'd told her, I'm so sorry I didn't hang out with you more last year. Like an adrenaline shot to the chest, her answer, Then don't waste this year. And then that moment in front of her, oceans and continents away from home, the requisite outsider, creature of introverted pathos and facile self-pity, faced with an unfathomable specter of romance that had evaded me, for twenty-one years. Face to face with Karina, I was drunk on my own virginal sweetness, a thick honey waiting in my steaming mouth, enriched by her attention. I was drunk on her dazzling erudition, her preposterous loveliness. We hugged. I, underdressed international student shivering in a Pennsylvanian winter, she, bespectacled American woman hidden in the raven-winged grasp of a thick overcoat, the wintry romanticism of Russian jeans sleeting across her pale face and freckles. If I look at photographs of Karina from now or then, she will be beautiful, but never as beautiful as that night or that year. You're too tall, she said as we held the embrace, because I had to bend down. I know, I said, at a loss for wit. 
I felt her laugh silently, chin on my shoulder. A moment of quiet. Thank you, she whispered into my neck, making the hair there stand on end. Her arms slipped away, fingers tracing the hidden furrows of my jacket-clad ribs. She stood on tiptoes and pushed her mouth against the corner of mine, leaving a trace of moisturizing gloss. So brief it was, the mere ghost of the future. I watched her walk away. Even then I saw the ripple of space-time warping behind her as she walked under the pools of streetlight that demarcated the pavement of North Pine. Her kiss drying quickly in the winter air. I looked up, and the sky was in open darkness. Like burning ice, the tingling of that kiss rhymed my entire face, numbing me as I walked. I knew what it held then. I knew that it was a small, clear seed that she had left on my skin, that in two days it would blossom into a hard ache in my chest, leading me to ask her if she wanted to meet up, the two of us. She'd meet me in front of the arts house again, and we would duck into its incongruously empty living room, our clothes dappled with rain. Outside, visible through the panes of the front doors, those perpetual smokers, mingling tobacco fumes with clouded breath so they seemed to exist in a timeless fog on that porch. But soon even they would disappear, leaving Karina and I alone in that crimson-walled lounge, cross-legged on the carpet floor, feeling for all the world as if there were no one else in a dorm house that housed twenty students. In the milky glow from a corner lamp by the sleeping TV set, she would give me a tarot reading, laying the colorful pieces of my possible future between our shoes, her small converses staring at my unwieldy sneakers. Death would appear in the cards. Predictably, I'd say of this omen, should I be afraid? No, it just signifies change in your life, she'd say with a smile, under the ominous gray cowl of her hoodie. She would throw the hood back soon after, oracle revealing herself. The zipper on the hoodie would already be parted just enough to show the dampness of her neck, her naked collarbones. Anxiety eating at us both, she'd get up to leave, to finish an essay for a class. We would hug, only to find each other's lips, tongues touching as if we'd done this a hundred times before. We'd sink gently into the couch, glasses clashing as we kissed, tarot cards and Xbox controllers at our feet, our dimmed reflection framed in the TV set, her wet hair running clammy trails across my cheek and chin, a click of flesh, and our mouths would part. You really do look like death, I'd say to her in a throaty whisper, slurring on my recognition of this moment's importance. I would say this for a reason— Karina had told me once that she had met a famous author who personified death as a young, black-haired woman in his fiction. She told me that the author let her know that she looked like death. Not a harsh pun, but a compliment. Presenting this shard of her past to her, I'd place my hand against her warm cheek. She'd straighten my glasses in response, perhaps as stunned as me, and leave to write her essay. This is what I saw after my first kiss on West James and North Pine, walking back home under the watchful pines. I saw that second kiss, more befitting the name of a first. I saw that future grow out of the trace of lip gloss left on me by Karina, an oracular infection opening its eyes. I went on to fulfill this germ of destiny, giddy in its fevered ecstasy. 
I kissed her in two days, taro and Xbox controllers by our feet. The second kiss only strengthened this contagion. As I walked home, I also walked across time to when she'd find out that I was a virgin, that she was the first person I'd kissed. She'd be taken aback, but consider the options. She'd ask me if I was ready to be in an open relationship, no strings attached, because she was getting over a terrible breakup. I saw myself lying, saying that I was ready, ensuring the agony to come a month later at a basement party. There, I'd see her making out with her ex-boyfriend amid the hedonistic tangle of dancing bodies. The same night, she'd hold my hands and tell me, under the pulse of dance music, I'm sorry, babe. I'm not getting back together with him. I love him. I'm sorry, but I don't want a guy like him in my future. I want someone who's sweet to me, someone who'll stay with me, someone who'll marry me, someone like you. But she'd be drunk when she said this to me, and so would I. After my second kiss, I became lost to the possibilities of this splintered line in the sheet of space-time. If I let myself fall across the cracks of other timelines, I saw myself meeting other women. Or not, I saw myself remaining a virgin till I was old, sometimes till I was dead. So I returned to the point at which the cracks diverged, the spot of space-time that held West James and North Pine on that winter night in Pennsylvania, when Karina broke its surface by kissing me. I returned there and retraced that path. I saw us both making the mistake of thinking this was the right time for us to do whatever we were doing. I made those mistakes because she was my first kiss. There were other first kisses, and in some futures there were none, but they all came after that first, one way or the other. As I looked up at the silent pines of some uncertain time, those glistening stars, I knew that I'd eventually stand under a different night sky with Karina, near the end of her senior year, on the rooftop of the international house, looking at moonlight glazing the ice. She'd tell me with her perfect sense of mordant irony, this is so romantic, before placing one kitten-scratched hand on my chest, as if to prevent my heart breaking. Her other hand she'd place in mine, our interlaced fingers very cold. I don't think we should see each other any more, she'd say, as she must, Lancaster glowering under the silvered sky, clouds brushing invisible cracks stretching across eons of vacuum, connecting the sharp gravitational pinpoints of the stars. Please don't, I'd say, slipping into my vulnerability as if it were an old, comfortable cloak. The divine return of romantic solitude, of the eternal Virgo across all times, stretched across the cosmos above us in the unseen shape of a naked woman, death unclad. Why? I'd ask Karina. Because you never get angry, she'd say. Because you shouldn't let people walk all over you. I don't want to hurt you anymore. I'd bow my head in silence, not telling her that I did get angry. I just never showed her this anger, not in this timeline. I do care about you, a lot. You know that. We can be friends, can't we? She'd ask. And I would nod, knowing, knowing that we couldn't. She'd bend forward and press her cold lips against my sullen mouth, lingering for a moment. It would seem like my first kiss. With Karina, the unknowing vector, in front of me at the end of winter instead of the beginning. She's married now. Not to me. This is as it should be. I don't know what cosmic virus made her a vector, 
or for what reason, or if she ever realized the shattering wake she left in space-time. I don't know if her other boyfriends felt time fracture at her touch. All I know is that the oracle in me has closed its eyes. The infection is gone, or perhaps inert, an invisible helical alien curled around my heart, born on the corner of West James and North Pine. But I didn't waste that year. I hope Karina didn't either. I will choose this. Till my death, I will choose this. Let the oracle wake if it wants. There you go, drum again. Copyright is Indra Pamit. Thank you so much for that story, Indra Pamit. That was honestly, they, that's the little gem. So short, but everything's in there, man. It's just got everything. You know what I mean? Just, or just hasn't got everything. It's teasing. That's what I, you know, you kind of just teasing a little kind of giving you little glimpses of what, what, what's going on, what's happening, what's, oh. Yes, round of applause. Brilliant. I love that. Loved it so much. So, next up is Film Talk with our very own Dennis M. Lane. A review from the Jacaranda City. The other day, I was browsing through one of my books on Chelsea Football Club, and there was a picture of Raquel Welsh in full Chelsea strip on the set of the Western Hanny Calder. That was enough to send me into my DVD collection. And so, today, I'm going to talk about Fantastic Voyage, from 1966. The story is quite a simple one, really. Both the Soviets and the US have developed miniaturization technology. But there's a flaw. It only lasts for a limited time. The Soviet scientist who has solved the duration problem defects to the West, but is shot and falls into a coma. A team is placed in a small submersible and shrunk and they have 60 minutes to travel to the blood clot and save the scientist. However, one of the team is a saboteur. The last two-thirds of the movie follows the mission inside the patient's body, giving us strange and fantastic vistas as backgrounds to the story, whether that be sailing down a blood vessel in a river of red corpuscles, tapping air from the lungs, or fighting off white blood cells. The movie stars Stephen Boyd as CIA agent Grant. Thanks to his chiselled good looks, Boyd was more regularly seen in Sand and Sandals movies. For example, he played Messala in Ben-Hur. His last film role before his untimely death was as Graf Dracula in the West German comedy horror Lady Dracula. Rachel Welsh played Cora. This was in the same year that she starred as Loana in One Million Years B.C. and a few years before she appeared in the two 1970s Musketeers movies. Dr. Michaels was played by Donald Pleasance at his creepy best. This is an actor who specialised in disturbing characters, such as Himmler in The Eagle Has Landed and Nikolai Dalchimsky in Telephon. Dr. Duval was played by Arthur Kennedy, who was Jackson Bentley the journalist in Lawrence of Arabia. And General Carter was played by Edmund O'Brien, who, for me, will always be the heavy-drinking Senator Raymond Clark from Seven Days in May. Many people would tell you that the story was originally by Isaac Asimov. However, that isn't actually the case. He was contracted to write the novelization, which hit the bookstores six months before the movie hit the screens. Asimov went on to write a similar story, Fantastic Voyage 2, Destination Brain, 20 years later, which is set late in the 21st century and has a similar plot, but is not actually a sequel. 
In it, Asimov took the opportunity to solve some of the logical and scientific flaws imposed on him in the original. The original story was by Otto Clement and Jerome Bixby. Bixby had previously written It, The Terror from Beyond Space, and later wrote a number of episodes for the original Star Trek. The screenplay was by Harry Kleiner, who had previously written the screenplay for Carmen Jones, and went on to write Bullet, Le Mans, and Red Heat. The movie was directed by Richard Fleischer, who had previously directed 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and The Vikings, and went on to direct Doctor Doolittle, Soylent Green, Conan the Destroyer, and Red Sonja. In a plot pacing device that viewers of the 24 series will be familiar with, the submersible is injected into the patient's body 36 minutes into the film, and then they have 60 minutes in real time to complete the mission. Technically, it's an impressive movie especially considering that it's almost 50 years old, and it was nominated for five Oscars. Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Sound Editing, and it won for Best Art Direction and Best Special Effects. It must have been embarrassing during the Oscars because, as is the norm, the two special effects artists, Johnny Borghese and Greg C. Jensen, didn't even get screen credits on the movie. Borghese went on to produce special effects for the various Planet of the Apes movies, Jaws, Earthquake, The Towering Inferno, and Close Encounters of the Third Kind, plus The Time Tunnel, Lost in Space, Land of the Giants, Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, and Incredible Hulk TV series. Greg C. Jensen went on to work on, among others, The Bionic Woman, Galactica 1980, Big Trouble in Little China, Batman Returns, and The Scorpion King. This film wasn't the last incarnation of the story, though. In 1968, there was an animated series of the same name, and there was a comedy reworking, Inner Space, in 1987. The title may have been taken from Dr. Duval's line in the movie, where he says, Man is the centre of the universe. We stand in the middle of infinity between outer and inner space, and there is no limit to either. As I said at the start, the storyline is quite straightforward. But there's plenty of dramatic tension, some interesting special effects, and, of course, Raquel Welsh. So, if you haven't seen Fantastic Voyage before, search it out. It's definitely worth the $5 that it's currently going for online. Bye. Dennis, sir, thank you so much. Big thank you. Thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it is by Charlie Jane Anders, The Time Travel Club. Now, this story first came out in Asimov Science Fiction in October, I'm trying to look there, October, November 2013. And I read this kind of, I think as soon as it came out, I just loved it, do you know what I mean? Loved it so much. Give you a little heads up about Charlie Jane. Charlie Jane Anders writes about science fiction for IO9, and she's hard at work on a fantasy novel. You can find her work in McSweeney's Joke Book of Book Jokes, Best Science Fiction of Year 2009, Sex for America, and other anthologies. She also contributed to Mother Jones, The Wall Street Journal, The San Francisco Chronicle, Strange Horizons, and many other publications. She organises the Writers with Drinks reading series, with Annalise Newitz, she co-edited the anthology She's Such a Geek and published an indie magazine called Other. She wrote a novel called Choir Boy, which won the Lambert Literary Award and was a finalist for the Edmund White Award.
The story is narrated by Iba Armagus, who is an emerging filmmaker from Seattle. She was raised by historical sword fighters and by their protests for martial and historical accuracy, their experience forever tied her to fantasy science fiction genres. She had a script at the Austin Film Festival and in 2012 won the Jeff Archer Screenwriting Award. She currently in post-production of her first feature film, A Dark Fantasy, set in the Pacific Northwest. So... The Starship Sova is very proud to present The Time Travel Club by Charlie Jane Anders. Nobody could decide what should be the first object to travel through time. Malik offered his car keys. Jerboa held up an action figure. But then Lydia suggested her one-year sobriety coin, and it seemed too perfect to pass up. After all, the coin had a unit of time on it, as if it came from a realm where time really was a denomination of currency and they were about to break the bank of time forever if this worked. Lydia handed over the coin, no longer shiny due to endless thumb-worrying. And then she had a small anxiety attack. Just as long as I get it back, she said, trying to keep the edge out of her voice. You will, said Madame Alberta with a smile. This coin, we send a mere one minute into the future. It reappears in precisely the same place from which it disappears. Lydia would have been nervous about the first test of the time machine in Madame Alberta's musty dry laundry room in any case. After all they'd been through to make this happen, the stupid thing had to work. But now, she felt like a piece of herself. A piece she had fought for was about to vanish, and she would need to have faith. She sucked at having faith. Madame Alberta took the coin and placed it in an airtight glass cube, six by six by six, that they'd built where the washer-dryer was supposed to be. The balsa-walled laundry room was so crammed with equipment, there was scarcely room for four people to hunch over together. Once the coin was sitting on the floor of the cube, Madame Alberta walked back towards the main piece of equipment, which looked like a million vacuum cleaner hoses attached to a giant slow cooker. I keep thinking about what you were saying before, Lydia said to Malik, trying to distract herself. About wanting to stand outside history and see the empires rising and falling from a great height instead of being swept along by the waves. But what if this power to send things and people back and forth across history makes us the masters of reality? What if we can make the waves change directions or turn back entirely? What then? I chose your group with great care, Madame Alberta. As I have said, you have the wisdom to use this technology properly, all of you. Madame Alberta pulled a big lever, a whoosh of purple neon vapor into the glass cube, followed by a clorp sound, like someone was opening a soda can and burping at the same time, in exactly the way that might suggest they'd had enough soda already. And then the coin was gone. Wow, said Malik. His eyebrows went all the way up so his forehead concertained, and his short dreads did a fractal scatter. It just vanished, said Jerboa, bouncing with excitement, floppy hat flopping. It just, it's on its way. Lydia wanted to hold her breath, but there was so little air in here that she was already lightheaded. This whole wooden beam staircase flank basement area felt like a soup of fumes. Lydia really needed to pee, but she didn't want to go upstairs and risk missing the sudden reappearance of her coin, which would be newer than everything else in the world by a minute. She held it, swaying and squirming. 
She looked down at her phone, and there were just about 30 seconds left. She wondered if they should count down, but that was probably too tacky. She couldn't breathe at this point, and she was starting to taste candy floss, and everything smelled white. Just 10 seconds left, Malik said. And then they did count down, after all. Nine. Eight. Seven. Six. Five. Four. Three. Two. One. They all stopped and stared at the cube, which remained empty. There was no soda gas noise, no sign of an object breaking back into the physical world from some nether space. Um, said Jerboa, did we count down too soon? Eat these possible, my calculations, said Madame Alberta, waving her hands in distress. Her fake accent was slipping even more than usual. But no, I mean, I could, I, I quadruple checked. They cannot be wrong. Give it a minute or two longer, said Malik. I'm sure it'll turn up as if it was a missing sock in the dryer instead of a coin in the cube that sat where the dryer ought to be. They gave it another half hour, as the knot inside Lydia got bigger and bigger. At one point, Lydia went upstairs to pee in Madame Alberta's tiny bathroom, facing a calendar of exotic bird paintings. And eventually, Lydia went outside to stand in the front yard, facing the one-lane highway, cursing. Why had she volunteered her coin? And now, she would never see it again. Lydia went home and spent an hour on the phone, processing with her sponsor, Nate, who kept reassuring her, in a voice thick as pork rinds, that the coin was just a token, and she could get another one, and it was no big deal. These things have no innate power. They're just symbols. She didn't mention the time machine thing, but kept imagining her coin, waiting to arrive, existing in some moment that hadn't been reached yet. Even after all of Nate's best talk-downs, Lydia couldn't sleep. And at three in the morning... Lydia was still thinking about her one-year coin, floating in a state of indeterminacy. And then, it hit her, and she knew the answer. She turned on the light, sat up in bed, and stared at the wall of ring-pull talking animal toys facing her bed, thinking it through, again and again, until she was sure. At last, Lydia couldn't help phoning Jerboa, who answered the phone, still half-asleep and in a bit of a panic. "'What is it?' Jerboa said. "'What?' What's wrong? I can find my pants, I swear. I can put on some pants, and then I'll fix whatever. It's fine. Nothing's wrong. No need for pants, Lydia said. Sorry to wake you. Sorry, I didn't realize how late it was. She was totally lying, but it was too late anyhow. But I was thinking, Madame Alberta said the coin moved forward in time one minute, but it stayed in the same physical location, right? That's right, said Jerboa. Same place, different time. Only moving in one dimension. But, said Lydia, what if the Earth wasn't in the same place when the coin arrived? I mean, doesn't the Earth move around the sun? Yeah, sure, and the Earth rotates, and the sun moves around the galactic disk, and the galaxy is moving, too, towards Andromeda and the Great Attractor, said Jerboa. And space itself is probably moving around. There's no such thing as a fixed point in space. But Madame Alberta covered that, remember? According to Einstein, the other end of the rift in time ought to obey Newton's first law, conservation of momentum, which means the coin would still follow the Earth's movement and arrive at the same point, except... Wait a minute. Lydia waited a minute, after which Jerboa still hadn't said anything else. Lydia had to look at her phone to make sure she hadn't gotten hung up on except what she finally said. 
except that the Earth's orbit and rotation are momentum plus gravity. Like, we actually accelerate towards the sun as part of our orbit, or else our momentum would just carry us into space. And Madame Alberta said her time machine worked by opting out of the fundamental forces, right? And gravity is one of those, which would mean, wait a minute, wait a minute, another long, weird pause, except this time Lydia could hear Jaboa breathing heavily and muttering sotto voce. Then Jaboa said, I think I know where your medallion is, Lydia. Where? Right where we left it, on the roof of Madame Alberta's neighbor's house. <laughs> Lydia had less than 90 days of sobriety under her belt when she first met the Time Travel Club. They met in the same Unitarian basement as Lydia's 12-step group, a grimy cellar with a huge steam pipe running along one wall, an intermittent gray carpeting that looked like a scale map of plate tectonics. Picture of purple hands holding a green globe and dancing scribble children hung askew by strands of peeling scotch tape. Boiling hot in summer, drafty in winter, it was a room that seemed designed to make you feel desperate and trapped. But all the twelve-steppers laughed a lot, in between crying, and afterwards everybody shared cigarettes, and sometimes pie. Lydia didn't feel especially close to any of the other twelve-steppers, and she didn't smoke, but she felt a desperate lifeboat solidarity with them. The Time Travel Club always showed up just as the last people from Lydia's twelve-step meeting were dragging their asses out of there. Most of the time travelers wore big dark coats and furry boots that seemed designed to look equally ridiculous in any time period. Lydia wasn't sure why she stayed behind for one of their meetings, since it was a choice between watching people pretend to be time travelers and eating pie. Nine times out of ten, pie would have won over fake time travel, but Lydia needed to sit quietly by herself and think about the mess she'd made of her life before she tried to drive, and the time travel club was as good a place as any. Malik was a visitor from the distant past, the Kushite kingdom of roughly 2,700 years ago. The Kushites were a pretty swell people, who made an excellent palm wine that tasted sort of like cognac. And now, Malik commuted between the Kushite era, the present day, and the 32nd century, where there was going to be a neo-Kushite revival going on, and the dark, well-cheekboned Malik would become a bit of a celebrity. The androgynous and pronoun-free Jerboa looked tiny and bashful inside a huge brown hat and a high collar. Jerboa spent a lot of time in the year 1 million, a time period where the parties were excellent and the people were considerably less hung up on gender roles. Jerboa also hung out in the 1920s and the early 1600s on occasion. And then there was Normando, a Kenny Rogers-looking dude who was constantly warping back to this one party in 1973 where he'd met this girl who had left him for an older man just as a young Normando was going to ask her to bug out with him. And now Normando was convinced that he could be that older man if he could just find that one girl again. Lydia managed to shrink into the background of the first time travel club meeting without having to say anything. But a week later, she decided to stick around for another meeting because it was better than just going home alone and nobody was going for pie that time. And she said she didn't have a time machine and if she did, she would probably just use it to make the itchy insomniac nights end sooner so she could wander alone in the sun rather than hide alone in the dark. Oh, they said. Lydia felt guilty about harshing their shared fantasy like that, to the point where she spent the next week obsessing about what a jerk she'd been, and even had to call Nate once or twice to report that she was a terrible person, and she was struggling with some dark thoughts. She vowed not to crash the time travel club's meetings again, because she was not going to be a disruptive influence. 
Instead, though, when the 12-step meeting ended and everybody else staggered out, Lydia said the same thing she'd been saying the previous couple weeks. Nah, you guys go on. I'm just going to sit for a spell. When the time travelers arrived and Malik's baby face lit up with his opening spiel about how this was a safe space for people to share their space-time experiences, Lydia stood up suddenly in the middle of his intro and blurted, I'm a pirate. I sail a galleon in the 19th century. I'm the first mate, and they call me Bad Bessie, even though I'm named Lydia. Also, I do extreme solar sail racing a couple hundred years from now, but that's only on weekends. Uh, Sorry, I didn't say that last week. I was embarrassed because piracy is against the law. And then she sat down very fast. Everybody applauded and clapped her on the back and thanked her for sharing. This time around, there were half a dozen people in the group, up from the usual four or five. Lydia wasn't really a pirate, though she did work in a pirate-themed adult bookstore near the interstate called the Lusty Doubloon, with the O's and Doubloon forming the absurdly globular breasts of its tricorner-hatted mascot. Lydia got pretty tired of shooting down pickup lines from the type of men who couldn't figure out a fine porn on the internet. Something about Lydia's dishwater blonde hair and smattering of monster tattoos apparently did it for those guys. The shower in Lydia's studio apartment was always pretty revolting, because the smell of bleach or Lysol reminded her of the video booths at work. Anyway, after that, Lydia started sticking around for the time travel club every week as a chaser for a 12-step meeting. It helped get her back on an even keel so she could drive home without shivering so hard she couldn't see the road. She even started hanging out with Malik and Jerboa socially. Malik was willing to quit talking about palm wine around her, and they all started going out for fancy tea at a place at the mall, the one that put the leaves inside a paper satchel that you had to seat for exactly five minutes or everything would be ruined. Lydia and Jerboa went to an all-ages concert together and didn't care that they were about ten years older than everybody else. They'd obviously misaligned the temporal stabilizers and arrived too late, but just in time. Just in time was Jerboa's favorite catchphrase, and it was never said without a glimpse of sharp little teeth, a vigorous nod, and a widening of Jerboa's brown-green eyes. For six months, the time travelers' meetings slowly became Lydia's favorite thing every week, and these weirdos became her particular gang. Until one day, Madame Alberta showed up and brought the one thing that's guaranteed to ruin any time travel club ever. An actual working time machine. Lydia's one-year coin was exactly where Jaboa had said it would be, on the roof of the house next door to Madame Alberta's nestled in some dead leaves in the crook between Brick Gable and the upward slope of a rooftop. She managed to borrow the neighbor's ladder by sort of explaining. The journey through the space-time continuum didn't seem to have messed up Lydia's coin at all, but it had gotten a layer of grime from sitting overnight. She cleaned it with one of the sanitizing wipes at work, before returning it to its usual front pocket. About a week later, Lydia met up with Malik and Jerboa for bubble tea at this place in the Asian mall, where they also served peanut honey toast and squid balls and stuff. Lydia liked the feeling of the squidgy tapioca blobs gliding up the fat straw, then falling into her teeth. Alien larvae, never to hatch. Alien tadpoles, squirming to death in her tummy. None of them had shown up for the time travel club the previous night. Normando had called them all in a panic, wanting to know where everyone was. Somehow, Malika thought Jerboa would show up, and Jerboa had figured Lydia would stick around after her other meeting. It's just... Malik looked into his mug of regular old coffee, with a tragic expression, accentuated by hot steam. 
what's the point of sharing our silly make-believe stories about being time travelers when we built an actual real time machine and it was no good? Well, the machine worked, Jaboa said, looking at the dirty, cracked tile floor. It's just that you actually can't use it to visit the past or the future in person. Lydia's coin was displaced upward at an angle of about 36 degrees by the Earth's rotation and orbit around the sun. The further forward and backward in time you go, the more extreme the spatial displacement, because the distance traveled to the square of the time allotted. The further forward and backward in time you go, the more extreme the spatial displacement, because the distance traveled to the square of the time traveled. Send something an hour and a half forward in the future, and you'd be over 400 kilometers away from Earth, or deep underground, depending on the time of day. So if we wanted to travel a few years ahead, Lydia said, we would need to send a spaceship so it could fly back to Earth from wherever it appeared. I doubt you'd be able to transport an object that size, said Jerboa. From what Madame Alberta explained, anything more than 216 cubic feet, or about 200 pounds, and the energy costs go up exponentially. Madame Alberta hadn't answered the door when Lydia went back to get her coin. None of them had heard from Madame Alberta since then either. Not only that, but once you were talking about traversing years rather than days, then other factors, such as the sun's acceleration towards the center of the galaxy and the galaxy's acceleration towards the Virgo supercluster, came more into play. You might not ever find Earth again. They all sat for a long time, listening to the canto pop and their own internal monologues about failure. Lydia was thinking that an orbit is a fragile thing, after all. You take centripetal force for granted at your peril. She could see Malik, Jerboa, and herself, preparing to drift away from each other once and for all, free to follow their separate trajectories, separate futures. She had a clawing certainty that this would be the last time the three of them would ever see each other, and she was going to lose the time travel club forever. And then it hit her, a way to turn this into something good and keep the group together. Wait a minute, said Lydia. So we don't have a machine that lets a person visit the past or future, but... Don't people spend kind of a lot of money to launch objects into space? Like satellites and stuff. Yeah, said Jerboa. It costs a ton of money just to lift a pound of material out of our gravity well. And then, for the first time that day, Jerboa looked up from the floor and shook off the curtain of black hair so you could actually see the makings of a grin. Oh, yeah, I see what you're saying. We don't have a time machine. We have a cheap, simple way to launch things into space. You just send something a few hours into the future, and it's in orbit. We can probably calculate exact distances and trajectories with a little practice. The hard part will be achieving a stable orbit. So, said Malik, I don't see how that helps anything. Oh, you're suggesting we turn this into a money-making opportunity. Lydia couldn't help thinking of the fact that her truck needed an oil change, and a new headpipe, and four new tires, and the ability to start when she turned the key in the ignition. And she needed to never go near the lusty doubloon again. It's better than nothing, she said, until we figure out what else this machine can do. Look at it this way, Jerboa said to Malik. If we are able to launch a payload into orbit on a regular basis, then that's a repeatable result. A repeatable result is the first step towards being able to do something else. And we can use the money to reinvest in the project. Well, Malik said. And then he broke into a smile, too. Radiant. If we can talk Madame Alberta into it. They phoned Madame Alberta a hundred times, and she never picked up. At last, they just went to her house and kept banging on the door until she opened up. 
Madame Alberta was drunk. Not just regular drunk, but long-term drunk. Like she'd gotten drunk a week ago and never sobered up. Lydia took one look at her, one whiff of the booze fumes, and had to go outside and dry heave. She sat, bent double, on Madame Alberta's tiny lawn, almost within view of the St. Ignatius College Science Lab that they'd stolen all that gear from a few months earlier. From inside the house, she heard Malik and Jerboa trying to explain to Madame Alberta that they had figured out what happened to the coin. And now, they could turn it into kind of a good thing. They were having a hard time getting through to her. Madame Alberta's faux European accent was basically gone, and she sounded like a bitter old drunk lady from New Jersey who just wanted to drink herself to death. Eventually, Malik came out and put one big hand gently on Lydia's shoulder. You should go home, he said. Jerbo and I will help her sober up, and then we'll talk her through this. I promise we won't make any decisions until you're there to take part. Lydia nodded and got in her rusty old Ford, which rattled and groaned and finally came to a semblance of life long enough to let her roll back down the highway to her crappy apartment. Good thing it was pretty much downhill all the way. When Madame Alberta first visited the time travel club, nobody quite knew what to make of her. She had olive skin, black hair, and a beauty mark on the left side of her face, which tended to change its location every time Lydia saw her. And she wore a dark headscarf, or maybe a snood, and a long black dress with a slit up one side. That first meeting, her Eurasian accent was the thickest and the fakest it would ever be. I have the working theory of the time machine, and the prototype that it is, um, how you say, half-built. I need a few more pairs of hands to help me complete the assembly, but I also require the ethical advice. Like a steering committee, said Jerboa, perking up with a quick sideways head motion. Even so, said Madame Alberta. Much like the Unitarian Church upstairs, the time machine has need of steering committee. At first, everybody assumed Madame Alberta was just sharing her own time travel fantasy, albeit one that was a lot more elaborate and involved a lot more delayed gratification than everybody else's. Still, the rest of the meeting was sort of muted. Lydia was all set to share her latest experiences with the solar sail demolition derby, the most dangerous sport that would ever exist. And Malak was having drama with the Babylonians, either in the past or the future, Lydia wasn't sure which. But Madame Alberta had a quiet certainty that threw the group out of whack. I leave you now, said Madame Alberta, bowing and curtsying in a single weird, arm-sweeping motion that made her appear to be the master of a particularly esoteric drunken martial arts style. Take the next week to discuss my proposition. Be aware, though, this will be the most challenging of ventures. She whooshed out of the room long, flowy dress trailing behind her. Nobody actually spent the week between meetings debating whether or not they wanted to help Madame Alberta build her time machine. Instead, Lydia kept asking the other members whether they could find an excuse to kick her out of the group. She freaks me out, man, Lydia said on the phone to Malik on Sunday evening. She seems, for real, mentally not there. I don't know, Malik said. I mean, we never kicked anybody out before. There was that one guy who seemed like he had a pretty serious drug problem last year with his whole astral projection shtick, but he stopped coming on his own after a couple times. I just don't like it, said Lydia. I have a terrible feeling she's going to ruin everything. She didn't add that she really needed this group to continue the way it was, that these people were becoming her only friends, and the only reason she felt like the future might actually really exist for her. She didn't want to get needy or anything. Eh, said Malik, it's a time travel club. 
If she becomes a problem, we'll just go back in time and change our meeting place last year so she won't find us. Good point. It was Jerboa who found the article in the Berkeley Daily Voice. A physics professor who had lectured at Berkeley and also worked at Lawrence Livermore had gone missing in highly mysterious circumstances six months earlier. And the photo of the vanished Professor Martindale, dark hair, laughing eyes, narrow mouth, looked rather a lot like Madame Alberta, except without any beauty mark or giant scarf. Jerboa emailed the link to the article to Lydia and Malik. Do you think dot 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 question mark? The email read. The next meeting came around. Besides the three core members and Madame Alberta, there was Normando, who had finally tracked down the hippie chick in 1973 and was now going on the same first date. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. With her over and over again, arriving five minutes earlier each time to pick her up. Lydia did not think that would actually work in real life. The others waited until Normando had run out of steam, describing his latest interlude with starshine Lady Swirl, and wandered out to smoke a vaguely postcoital cigarette, before they started interrogating Madame Alberta. How did this alleged time machine work? Why was she building it in her laundry room instead of a proper research institution? Had she absconded from Berkeley with some government-funded research? And if so, were they all going to go to jail for helping her? Let us say, for the sake of argument. Madame Alberta played up her weird accent, even as her true identity as a college professor from Camden was brought to light. That I had developed some of the theory of the time travel while on the payroll of the government. Yes? In that hypothetical situation, what would be ethical thing to do? 
You are my steering committee. Please tell me. Well, said Malik, I don't know that you want the government to have a time machine. Yeah, yeah, Jerboa said. They already have warrantless wiretaps and indefinite detention. Imagine if they could go back in time and spy on you in the past. Or kill people as children. Well, but, Lydia said, I mean, wouldn't it still be your responsibility to share your research? But the others were already on Madame Alberta's side. As to how it works, Madame Alberta reached into her big black trench coat and pulled out a big rolled-up set of plans, covered in equations and drawings, which meant nothing to anybody. Shall we say it was accidental discovery? One was actually working on a project for the Department of Energy, aimed at finding a way to eliminate atomic waste. And instead, one stumbled on a method of using spent uranium to create opening two plank lengths wide, lasting a few fractions of a microsecond, while the other end a few seconds in future. Uh-huh, Lydia said. So you could create a wormhole too tiny to see that only allowed you to travel a few seconds forward in time. That's, um, useful, I guess. But then, one discovers that one might be able to generate a much larger temporal rift, opting out of the fundamental forces, and it would be stable enough to move a person or a moderate-sized object either forward or backward in time, anywhere from a few minutes to a few thousand years in the exact same physical location, said Madame Alberta. One begins to panic, imagining the power in the hands of the government. This is all the hypothetical situation, of course. In reality, one knows nothing of this Professor Martindale, of whom you speaks. But, said Lydia, I mean, why us? I mean, assuming you really do have the making of a time machine in your laundry room, why not reach out to some actual scientists? Then she answered her own question. Because you're worried they would tell the government. Okay, but the world is full of smart amateurs and clever geeks. And us, I mean, I work the day shift at a... She tried to think of a way to say pirate-themed sex shop. That didn't sound quite so horrible. And Malik is a physical therapist. Jerboa has a physics degree, sure, but that was years ago. And more recently, Jerboa has been working as a caseworker for teenagers with sexual abuse issues. Which is totally great. But I'm sure you can find bigger experts out there. One has chosen with the greatest care. Madame Alberta fixed Lydia with an intense stare, like she could see all the way into Lydia's damaged core. Or maybe like someone who was used to wearing glasses, but had decided to pretend she had 20-20 vision. You are all the good people with the strong moral centers. You have given much thought of the time travel. And yet... You speak of it without any avarice in your hearts. Not once have I heard any of you talk of using the time travel for wealth or personal advancement. Well, except for Normando using it to get into Lady Swirl's pants, said Malik. Even as you say, except for Normando. Madame Alberta did another one of her painful-to-watch bow curtsies. So, what is your decision? Will you join me in this great and terrible undertaking or not? What could they do? 
They all raised their hands and said they were in. Ricky was the chief fascination evangelist for Garbo.com, a web startup for rich paranoid people who wanted to be left alone. They were trying to launch a premium service where you could watch yourself via satellite 24-7 to make sure nobody else was watching you. Ricky wore denim shirts with the sleeves square folded to the elbows and white silk ties with black corduroys, and his neck funneled out of the blue jean collar and led to a round, pale head, shaved except for wispy sideburns. He wore steel rim glasses. He had a habit of swinging his arms back and forth and clapping his hands when he was excited, like when he talked about getting a satellite into orbit. Everybody else says it'll take months to get our baby into space, Ricky told Malik and Lydia for the fifth or sixth time. The Kazakhs don't even know when they can do it. But you said you can get our Garbonaut 5,000 into orbit next week, Malik said yet again. Maybe 10 days from now. He canned his palms in midair like it was no big deal. Launching satellites, whatever, just another day. Putting stuff into orbit. Whoa. Ricky arm clapped his chair. That is just insane. Seriously, like nuts. We are a hungry new company. Mallet gave the same bright smile he used to announce the start of every time travel club meeting. They've been lucky to find this guy. We want to build our customer base from the ground up, all the way from the ground into space. Because we're a space company, right? Of course we are. And did I mention we're hungry? Hungry is good. Ricky seemed to be studying Malik and the giant photo of MJL Aerospace's non-existent rocket, a retrofitted Soyuz. The hungry survive, the fat starve, or something. So, when do I get to see this rocket of yours? You can't, sorry, Malik said. Our, um, chief rocket scientist is kind of leery about letting people see our proprietary new fuel system technology up close. But here's a picture of it. He gestured at the massive rocket picture on the fake mahogany wall behind his desk, which they'd spent hours creating in Photoshop and After Effects. MJL Aerospace was subletting ultra-cheap office space in an industrial park just up the highway from the lusty doubloon. Malik, Lydia, and Jerboa had been excited about becoming a fake rocket company until they'd started considering the practical problems. For one thing, nobody will hire you to launch a satellite unless you've already launched a satellite before. It's like how you can't get an entry-level job unless you've already had work experience. Plus, they weren't entirely sure they could get a satellite into a stable orbit, which is one of a dozen reasons Malik was sweating. They could definitely place a satellite at different points in orbit and different trajectories by adjusting the time of day, the distance traveled, and the location on Earth they started from. But after that, the satellite wouldn't be moving fast enough to stay in orbit on its own. It would need extra boosters to get up to speed. Jerboa thought they could send a satellite way higher, around 42,000 kilometers away from Earth, and then use relatively small rockets to speed it up to the correct velocity as it slowly dropped down into the correct orbit. But even if that worked, it would require Garbo.com to customize the Garbonaut 5000 quite a bit. And Madame Alberta had severe doubts. Sorry, man, said Ricky. I'm not sure I can get my people to authorize a satellite launch based on just seeing a picture of a rocket. It is a nice picture, though. Good sense of composition. Like, the clouds look real pretty. Like, with that one flock of birds in the distance. Poetic, you know. Of course you can see the rocket, Lydia interjected. 
She was sitting off to one side, taking notes on the meeting, wearing cheap pantyhose in a $40 swivel chair, with puffy sleeves covering her tattoos. One for every country she'd ever visited. Just, maybe not before next week's launch. If you're willing to wait a few months, we can arrange a site visit and stuff. We just can't show you the rocket before our next launch window. Right, said Malik. If you still want to launch next week, though, we can give you a 60% discount. 60%, Ricky said, suddenly seeming interested again. 65%, Malik said. We're a young, hungry company. We have a lot to prove. Our business model is devouring the week, and we hate to launch with spare capacity. Maybe going straight to 65% was a mistake, or maybe the devouring the week thing had been too much. In any case, Ricky seemed uneasy again. Huh, he said. So, how many uh, test launches have you guys done? My friend who works for NASA says every rocket launch in the world gets tracked. We've done a slew of test launches, Malik said. Like, um, a dozen. But we have some proprietary stealth technology, so people probably miss them. And then he went way off script. Our company founder, Augustus Marzipan IV, grew up around rockets. His uncle was Werner von Braun's wine steward, so rockets are in his blood. Ricky's frown was getting more and more pinched. Well, Ricky said at last, standing up from his cheap metal chair, I will definitely bring your proposal to our senior visionizer, Terry. But I have a feeling the VCs aren't going to want to pay for a launch without kicking the tires. I'm not the one who writes the checks, you know. If I wrote the checks, a lot of things would be different. And he paused, probably imagining all the things that would happen if he wrote the checks. When Augustus Marzipan was only five years old, his pet Dalmatian Henry was sent into space. Never to return, said Malik, as if inventing more stories would cushion his fall off a cliff he'd already walked over. That's where our commitment to safety comes from. That's great, said Ricky. I love dogs. He was already halfway out the door. As soon as Ricky was gone, Malik sagged as though the air had gone out of him. He rubbed his brow with one listless hand. We're a young, hungry company, he said. We're a hungry young company. Which sounds better, I can't tell. That could have been worse, Lydia said. I can't do this, said Malik. I just can't. I'm sorry. I'm good at pretending for fun. I just can't do it for money. I'm really sorry. Lydia felt like the worst person in the world, even as she said, Lots of people start out pretending for fun and then move on to pretending for money. That's the American dream. The sun was already going down behind the cement fountain outside, and she realized she was going to be late for a 12-step group soon. She started pulling her coat and purse and scarf together. Hey, I gotta run. I'll see you at the time travel club, okay? I think I'm gonna skip it, Malik said. I can't. I just... I can't. What? Lydia felt like if Malik didn't come to time travel club, it would be proof that something was seriously wrong, and their whole foundation was splitting apart, and it would be provably her fault. I'm just too exhausted. Sorry. Lydia came over and sat on the desk, so she could see Malik's face behind his hand. Come on, she pleaded. Time Travel Club is your baby. We can't just have a meeting without you. That would be weird. Come on, we won't even talk about being a fake aerospace company. We couldn't talk about that in front of Normando anyway. Malik sighed like he was about to argue. 
Then he lifted the loop of his tie all the way off. Now that he was done playing CEO, for a second, his rep-striped tie was a halo. Okay, fine, he said. It'll be good to hang out and not talk business for a while. Yeah, exactly. It'll be mellow, Lydia said. She felt the terror receding, but not entirely. Normando was freaking out because his girlfriend in 1973 had dumped him. Long story short, his strategy of arriving earlier and earlier for the same first date had backfired. A couple other semi-regulars had showed up too, including Betty the Cyborg from the Dawn of Time. And Madame Alberta showed up too, even though she hadn't ever shown any interest in visiting their aerospace office. She sat in the corner, studying the core members of the group, maybe to judge whether she'd chosen wisely, as if she could somehow go back and change that decision, which, of course, she couldn't. Malik tried to talk about his last trip to the 32nd century, but he kept staring at his CEO shoes and saying things like, The Neo-Babylonians were giving us grief, but we were young and hungry. And then trailing off like his heart just wasn't in it. Jerboa saw Malik running out of steam and jumped in. I met Christopher Marlowe. He told me that his version of Faust originally ended with Dr. Faust and Helen of Troy running away together and teaching geometrically complex hand dances in Shropshire, and they made him change it. Jerboa talked really fast, like an addict trying to stay high. Or a comedian trying not to get booed off stage. He told me to call him Kit and show me the difference between a doublet and a singlet. A doublet is not two singlets. Did you know that? Sitting in the Unitarian basement, under the purple dove hands, Lydia watched Malik starting to say things and then just petering out, with a shrug or shake of his head, and Jerboa rattling on and not giving anybody else a chance to talk. Guilt. And then, just as Lydia was crawling out of her skin, Madame Alberta stood up. I have a thing to confess, she said. Malik and Lydia stared up at her, feeling she was about to blow the whistle on their scam. Jerboa stopped breathing. I am from an alternate timeline, Madame Alberta said. It is the world where the American Revolution did not happen, and the British Empire had the conquest of all of South America. The Americas, Africa, Asia, the British ruled it all. Until the rest of Europe launched the Great World War to stop the British imperialism. And Britain discovered nuclear weapons. And Europe burned to ashes. I traveled many times. I traveled through time to try and change history. But instead... I find myself here, in the other universe, and I can never return home. Uh, Malik said, thanks for sharing. He looked relieved and weirded out. At last, Madame Alberto explained, it is the warning. Sometimes you have the power to change the world, but power, it is not opportunity. It is choice. After that, nobody had much to say. Malik and Jerboa didn't look at Lydia or each other as they left, and nobody was surprised when the Time Travel Club's meeting was canceled the following week, or when the club basically ceased to exist sometime after that. Malik, Jerboa, and Lydia sat in front of Malik's big van on the grassy roadside, waiting for Madame Alberta to come back and tell them where they were going. 
Madame Alberta supposedly knew where they could dig up some improperly buried spent uranium from the power plant. And the back of the van was full of pretty good safety gear that Madame Alberta had scared up for them. The faceplates of the suits glared up at Lydia from their uncomfortable resting place. The three of them were psyching themselves up to go and probably irradiate the shit out of themselves. Worth it if the thing they were helping to build in Madame Alberta's laundry room was a real time machine and not just another figment. You guys never asked, Lydia said around one in the morning, when they were all starting to wonder if Madame Alberta was going to show. I mean, about me and why I was in the 12-step group before the time travel club meetings. You don't know anything about me or what I've done. We know all about you, Malik said. You're a pirate. You do extreme solar sail sports in the future, Jerboa added. What else is there to know? But, Lydia said, I could be a criminal. I might have killed someone. I could be as bad as that astral projection guy. Lydia, Malik put one hand on her shoulder, like, super gently. We know you. Nobody spoke for a while. Every few minutes, Malik turned on the engine so they could get some heat, and the silence between engine starts was deeper than ordinary silence. I had blackouts, Lydia said, like a lot of blackouts. I would lose hours at a time, no clue where I'd been or how I'd gotten there. I'd just be in the middle of talking to people or behind the wheel of a car in the middle of nowhere, no clue. I worked at this high-powered sales office. We obliterated our targets, and everybody drank all the time. Pictures of beer, of martinis, of margaritas. The pitcher was like the emblem of our solidarity. You couldn't turn the picture away. It'd be like spitting on the team. We made so much money. And I had this girlfriend, Sarah, with this amazing red hair, who I couldn't even talk to when we were sober. We'd just lie in bed naked with a bottle of tequila propped up between us. I knew it was just a matter of time before I did something really unforgivable during one of those blackouts, especially after Sarah decided to move out. So what happened, Jerboa said. In the end, it wasn't anything I did during a blackout that caused everything to implode, Lydia said. It was what I did to keep myself from ever having another blackout. I got to work early one day, and I just lit a bonfire in the fancy conference room. And I threw all the contents of the company's wet bar into it. Once again, nobody talked for a while. Malik turned the engine on and off a couple times, which made about seven minutes of silence. They were parked by the side of the road, and every once in a while, a car simmered past. I think that's actually what makes us such good time travelers, actually. Jerboa's voice cracked a little bit, and Lydia was surprised to see the outline of tears on that small brown face, in the light of a distant highway detour sign. We're very experienced at being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and at doing whatever it takes to get ourselves to the right place and the right time. Lydia put her arm around Jerboa, who was sitting in the middle of the front seat, and Jerboa leaned into Lydia's shoulder so that just a trace of moisture landed on Lydia's neck. You wouldn't believe the places I've had to escape from in the middle of the night, Jerboa said, the people who tried to fix my, my irregularities. You wouldn't believe the methods that have been tried. People can justify just about anything if their perspective is limited enough. Malik wrapped his hand on Jerboa's back, so it was like all three of them were embracing. We've all had our hearts broken, I guess, he said. I was a teacher in one of those 
Teach for America style programs. I thought we were all in this together, that we had this shared code. I thought we were altruists until they threw me under the bus. And it was then that Malik said the thing about wanting to stand outside history and see the gears grinding from a distance, all the cruelty and all the edifices that had been built on human remains. The true power wouldn't be changing history, or even seeing how it turned out, but just seeing the shape of the wheel. They sat for a good long time in silence again. The engine ticked a little. They stayed leaning into each other as the faceplates watched. Lydia started to say something like, I just want to hold on to this moment, here, now, with the two of you. I don't care about whatever else. I just want this to last. But just as she started to speak, Madame Alberta tapped on the passenger side window, right next to Lydia's head, and gestured at her car, which was parked in front of theirs. It was time to suit up and go get some nuclear waste. Lydia didn't see Malik or Jaboa for a month or so, after Madame Alberta told her weird story about Europe getting nuked. MGL Aerospace shuttered its offices, and Lydia saw the rocket picture in a dumpster as she drove to the Lucky Doubloon. She redoubled her commitment to going to a 12-step meeting every goddamn day. She finally called her mom back and went to a few bluegrass concerts. Lydia got the occasional panic call from Normando, or even one of the other semi-regulars, wondering what happened to the club, but she just ignored it. Until one day, Lydia was driving to work, on the day shift again, and she saw Jerboa walking on the side of the road. Jerboa kicked the shoulder of the road, over and over again, kicking dirt and rocks, not looking ahead. Hips and knees jerking almost out of their sockets, inaudible curses spitting at the gravel. Lydia pulled over next to Jerboa and honked her horn a couple times, then rolled down the window. Come on, get in. She turned down the bluegrass on her stereo. Jerboa gave a gesture between a wave and a go away. Listen, I screwed up, Lydia said. That aerospace thing was a really bad idea. It wasn't about the money, though. You have to believe me about that. I just wanted to give us a new project so we wouldn't drift apart. It's not your fault. Jerboa didn't get into the truck. I don't blame you. Well, I blame myself. I was being selfish. I just didn't want you guys to run away. I was scared. But we need to figure out a way to turn the space travel back into time travel. We can't do that unless we work together. It's just not possible, Jerboa said. For any amount of time displacement beyond a few hours, the variables get harder and harder to calculate. The other day, I did some calculations and figured out that if you traveled 100 years in the future, you'd wind up around one-tenth of a light year away. And that's just the back of the envelope thing, based on our orbit around the sun. Okay, so one problem at a time. Lydia stopped her engine, gambling that it would restart. The bluegrass stopped mid-phrase. We need to get some accurate measurements of exactly where stuff ends up, when we send it forward and backward in time. But to do that, first we need to be able to send stuff out and get it back. There's no way, Jerboa said. It's a strictly one-way trip. We'll figure out a way, Lydia said. Trial and error. We just need to open a second rift close enough to the first rift to bring our stuff back. Yeah? Once we're good enough, we send people. And eventually, we send people, along with enough equipment to build a telescope in deep space, so we can spy on Earth in the distant past or the far future. There are so many steps in there. It's ridiculous, said Jerboa. Every one of those steps might turn out to be just as impossible as the satellite thing turned out to be. And we can't do this with just the four of us. We don't have enough pairs of hands. Or enough expertise. That's why we recruit, said Lydia. We need to find a ton more people who can help us make this happen. Except, said Jerboa, fists clenched and eyes red and pinched. Can't just trust any random people with this, remember? 
That's why Madame Alberta brought it to us in the first place. Because the temptation to abuse this power would be too great. You could destroy a city with this machine. How on earth do we find a few dozen people we can trust with this? The same way we found each other, Lydia said. The same way Madame Alberta found us. The time travel club. Jerboa finally got into the truck and snapped the seatbelt into place. Nodding slowly, like thinking it over. Ricky from Garbo.com showed up at a meeting of the Time Travel Club several months later. He didn't even realize at first that these were the same people from MGL Aerospace. Maybe he'd seen the articles about the club on the various nerd blogs, or maybe he'd seen Malik's appearance on the basic cable TV show, Geek Up. Or maybe he'd listened to one of their podcasts. They were doing lots and lots of things to expand the membership of the club, without giving the slightest hint about what went on in Madame Alberta's laundry room. Garbo.com had gone under by now, and Ricky was in grad school. He'd shaved off the big sideburns and wore Elvis Costello glasses now. So, uh, I heard this is like a LARP, sort of, Ricky said to Lydia, as they were getting a cookie from the cookie table before the meeting started. They'd had to move the meetings from the Unitarian basement to a middle school basketball court, now that they had a few dozen members. Scores of folding chairs in rows faced a podium. And they had a cookie table. You, uh, make up time travel stories and everybody pretends they're true, right? Sort of, Lydia said. You'll see. Once the meeting starts, you cannot say anything about the stories not being true, though, okay? It's the only real rule. Sure thing, Ricky said. I can do that. I worked for a dot-com startup, remember? I'm good at make-believe. And Ricky turned out to be one of the more promising new recruits, weirdly enough. He spent a lot of time going to the 18th century and teaching Capability Brown about Feng Shui, which everybody agreed was probably a good thing for the Enlightenment. Just a few months after that, Lydia, Malik, and Jerboa found themselves already debating whether to show Ricky the laundry room. Lydia was snapping her third-hand spacesuit into place in Madame Alberta's sitting room, with its caved-in sofa and big-screen TV askew. Lydia was happy to obsess over something else, to get her mind off the crazy thing she was about to do. I think he's ready, Lydia said of Ricky. He's committed to the club. I would certainly like to see his face when he finds out how we're really going to get that satellite into orbit, said Malik, grinning. It's too soon, Jerbo said. I think we ought to wait six months, as a rule, before bringing anyone here, just to make sure someone is really in tune with the group and isn't going to try and tell the wrong people about this. This technology has an immense potential to distort your sense of ethics and your values. Lydia tried to nod, but it was hard now that the bulky collar was in place. The spacesuit was half a size too big, with boots that Lydia's feet slid around in. The crotch of the orange suit was almost MC Hammer wide on her, even with the adult diaper they had insisted she should wear, just in case. The puffy white glove swallowed her fingers. And then, Malik and Jerboa lowered the helmet into place, and Lydia's entire world was compressed to a gray-tinted rectangle. Goodbye, peripheral vision. She wondered what sort of tattoo she would get to commemorate this trip. Ten minutes, Madame Alberta called from the laundry room. And indeed, it was ten to midnight. Are you sure you want to do this? Jerboa asked. It's not too late to call it off. I'm the only one that this suit sort of fits, Lydia said. And I'm the most expendable. And yes, I do want to be the first person to travel through time. After putting so many weird objects into that cube, thousands of them before they'd managed to get a single one back, Lydia felt strange about clambering inside the cube herself. She had to hunch over a bit. Malik waved and Jerboa gave a tiny thumbs up. Betty the cyborg, from the dawn of time, checked the instruments one last time. Steampunk Fred gave a thumbs up on the calculations. And Madame Alberta 
reached for the clunky lever. Even through her helmet, Lydia heard a greedy soda belch sound. A thousand years later, Lydia lost her hold on anything. She couldn't get her footing. There was no footing to get. She felt ill immediately. She expected the microgravity, but it still made her feel revolting. She felt drunk, actually. Like she didn't know which way was up. She spun head over ass. If she drifted too far, they would never pull her back. But the tiny maneuvering thrusters of her suit were useless because she had no reference point. She couldn't see a damn thing through the foggy helmet, just blackness. She couldn't find the sun or any stars for a moment. Then she made out the stars. And more stars. She spun and somersaulted, no control at all, until she tried the maneuvering thrusters the way Jerboa had explained. She tried to turn a full 360 so she could try and locate the sun. She had to remember to breathe normally. Every part of her wanted to hyperventilate. When she turned halfway around on her axis, she didn't see the sun. But she saw something else. At first, she couldn't even make sense of it. There were lights blaring at her, and things moving, and shapes. She took a few photos with the camera Malik had given her. The whole mass was almost spherical, maybe egg-shaped, but there were jagged edges. As Lydia stared, she made out more detail. Like... One of the shapes on the outer edge was the hood of a 1958 Buick, license plate and all. There were pieces of small passenger airplanes bullet on as well, along with a canopy made of some sort of shiny blue material Lydia had never seen before. It was just a huge collection of junk, welded together, protection against cosmic rays, and maybe also decoration. Some of the moving shapes were people. They were jumping up and down, and waving at Lydia, they were behind a big observation window at the center of the egg, a slice of see-through metal. They gestured at something beyond the window. Lydia couldn't make it out at first. Then she squinted and saw that it was a big, glowy sign with blocky letters made of massive pixels. At first, Lydia thought the sign read, Welcome Time Travel Club, like they knew the Time Travel Club was coming and they wanted to prepare a reception committee. Then she squinted again, just as another rift started opening to pull her back, a purple blaze all around her, and she realized she'd missed a word. The sign actually read, Welcome to Time Travel Club. These were all members of the club, too, and they were having another meeting. And they were inviting her to share her story any way she could. <laughs> There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Charlie Jane. Charlie, what? Again, do you know what I mean? Two stories on the day show. Like, I asked Charlie for that ages ago, and we had to wait for kind of copyright running out. But certainly worth the wait. Charlie, thank you so much for that. And, Iba, like I say, you've done a few narrations for Starship so far. Fantastic. Dying to see this film when this comes out as well, what you're working on. Oh, yes, certainly. So that is... Today's show, put to bed, 200, no, not 200, 329. Hope you enjoyed it. A very special one. Until next week, I would just like to say, good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? in next week for the next exciting installment of Shuttle Set 4.
This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. So I'm not going to talk a lot. <laughs> Just leave it a bit silent for a little bit while there. Uh... Well, like I say, I did want to kind of wrap it on, but I just thought it'd be kind of nice to chat about, you know, the kind of things have been going on, should I say, you know, Starship's over HQ. And if you remember, I I think it was a couple of weeks ago, I was kind of, I kind of excited, you know, like the, the, hut, the hut was getting kind of delivered, that they were going to put it up. And I was actually expecting it to come through, you know, when we were doing the show, because I was just thinking, you know, it's, it's a... For, Fair old size, you know what I mean? It was 14 foot by eight. And I think, oh, it'll just, you know, it'll take a while, so it'll just come. And I got a, a text, I think it was a text about two o'clock saying they'll be there within the kind of hour. And I'm thinking, eh, that's not, you know what I mean? That's waited all that time. And then I'm kind of thinking, oh, well, is he still coming? But then I was kind of thinking, oh. So, I mean, Julia, that turned up, these two lads turned up. And... As soon as they kind of turned up as well, I was thinking, one of them, like kind of the main guy, not the kind of main company that I was kind of dealing with, but the main guy who was putting this up, I could just tell he wasn't into it. Do you know what I mean? He just wasn't at all wanting to kind of do this hut or something, you know what I mean? As soon as he walked in, he went, ah, it's not level, not level, it's not level, mate. I mean, it flagged everything, you know what I mean? So, but it wasn't kind of crisp level. Do you know what I mean? That's what he was kind of saying. And oh, so I said, well, well, I says, you know, I, I've bought it. You know what I mean? You, you put it up. I said, I'm not going to kind of just have it lying against the wall if it's not going to be put up for me to kind of level it again. If it doesn't get level, it, it doesn't. Oh, I'll, have to, I'll have to speak to the boss. I'll have to speak to the boss. And he was way back to the boss on the phone and back. To, and I was thinking, oh, and I could tell it wasn't going to go up that day. Do you know what I mean? And like you say, you kind of have ordered it and it's been on order for. I think it's like a six weeks wait anyway. It's just too busy to kind of put them up. You know what I mean? That's how long the order took. And it was kind of, it was a weird thing because I says, you know, I was thinking, just put it up, man. You know, yeah, you might not want to, you might be, it might be a bit difficult for you. You know, the ground is a bit slow, but it was just exaggerating so much because it came, it comes in three sections and they put the kind of sections down on the, where I kind of had it, you know, sorted. And the, the furthest one, which was, I guess, the lowest part of the, the, the area, he lifted that, that section of the floor up to his knees and says, You've, we've got to raise it up this high, this high to get it level. Never going to work. It's never going to. And I thought, you know, you're exaggerating beyond all belief. It doesn't, you know what I mean? You, you've kind of lost it there now. And he says, I'm going to speak to my boss again. And I knew he was kind of just not in the mood for it. And then he says, oh, my boss wants to have a word. And... I was saying to the boss and the lad was standing there, I says, mind you, I says, to me, it doesn't look bad at all. Do you know what I mean? I says, it's, I mean, it was getting on for about three o'clock there. Now I says, three o'clock. And I think he doesn't want to kind of, yeah, it might've been a bit kind of difficult to put up, you know what I mean? A bit of chocking here and there. And then he says, put the boss back on, put the, sorry, put the lad back on the, on the phone. And he must've said something, you know, because the lad put the phone down she's right come on just put it up and I thought ah you're just gonna rush that you know what I mean now we're kind of rules reversed I'm thinking ah you're just gonna kind of whap that thing up any way you can right come on I said it doesn't matter I tell you what take it away it doesn't matter 
I want to put up properly. I don't want this kind of rush thing. And then I had the kind of guy on the phone and I says, listen, I says, it wasn't going to happen. I says, the way the kind of mood and everything like that. I says, and you're saying it's not level. I says, I would personally like you there. Do you know the guy, I came, the boss of the company, lovely. You know, he won, I think, Northeast Businessman of the Year award. You know what I mean? So he says, you know, we'll, we'll get this done. He says, if I'd been there, Tony says, I would have put it up. You know, he says, they've you know, been on doing sheds a couple of years. He says, I've been putting them up all my life. So we kind of arranged another day. Do you know what I mean? I was like, ah, oh, right, right. And you know, like you say, you could tell how excited I was anyways. You know what I mean? I was like, because this is like the, the idea and the dreams. I've got a couple of projects I'm going to do on there. Kind of just totally different from kind of science fiction. Two things in there I'm going to do. And maybe, you know, because I want internet in there. I'll do the, what's... Sometimes it's difficult it's kind of to carry out interviews, you know, because normally I'm, I'm speaking to some people in America or, you know, different coastlines, different timelines. And it might be easier to kind of do the interviews in there when there's no, where I'm not trying to be quiet. Because as you can tell, you know what I mean? I get, hey, I get excited. And the voice goes up. And if the little ones are in, oh, the little ones, well, he's really 12, is in bed, though, I kind of really kind of shout on and, you know, I feel kind of a little bit kind of, conscious that I'm kind of speaking, you know, into a mic when the kind of family's kicking around. So that was the idea as well, you know what I mean? Just put like a little laptop in there and do some interviews. So we arranged for a, a kind of another day and I was like, oh, right, 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 you know what I mean? But it's just like, it's like a week, do you know what I mean? You kind of got to wait a week. So we, you know, the day came and I got a text an hour before the arrive. Uh, it's not going to happen today is Sunday, it'll be Tuesday. And it's like, uh, and actually, he gives us his word, it would be on Sunday. Do you know what I mean? And then, like I said, he, so I like, by this time, I'm like, it matters, hot as, yeah. So I phoned him up, and the, the, the good wife, Melanie, said, just phone him up and say what the problem, there might be a genuine, I don't give a shit, you know what I mean? Bad tempered thing, me, you know what I mean? When it kind of gets it. I'm only bad tempered to myself. Do you know what I mean? I kind of blurt. No, I'm not. If you've met us in the street, I'm a kind of shy old guy. Very shy. But, you know, in the comfort of my own house, I'll kind of, yeah, Hey! You know what I mean? So I phoned him up and he was lovely. You know what I mean? He says, Tony, the bloody exhaust fell off. I've got a job in Scotland that's been knocked. I've got to get that one up. And then yours, he says, Tuesday. He says, listen, Tuesday before 12 o'clock, we'll have that up. So it's like, by that time, though, I'm kind of losing the, the little bit of the kind of the excitement or quite a lot of it. So it didn't, the, from the Sunday to the Tuesday, it didn't seem like the take ages and they turned up. And I could tell, I'm not sure. He just, he went, we could have gotten this up. Do you know what I mean? It could have been put up. Yeah, it needed a bit of chucking here and there, but all huts, you know what I mean? You're kind of, you're trying to get leveled and you're banging in a little bit of wood here just to get it a bit solid and stuff like that. And but it duly went up. Do you know what I mean? And like I say, the funny thing was, mind you, when it originally came and the two lads came originally to put it up, they put the like the three bases down and they didn't exactly put it where I wanted it. You know, what I wanted kind of shoved in the corner. In a couple of years' time you can kind of oh, actually I put them on Facebook and see some photographs. It wasn't exactly in the corner, so it was like kind of a foot away. And when I seen this boards, these three sections of wood, you know, down. I was thinking, my God, it's huge. We're going to have to go out the kind of, we've got like a kind of backyard, which goes into the back garden. 
we're going to have to go out this backyard and just kind of face, you know, like just shuffle sideways without turning around to walk out the garden. It was that big. I was thinking, oh, the wife will go crackers. Because I actually, I added like an extra foot, extra couple of foot at the last minute, an extra height. And I'm thinking, oh, man, she's going to go ballistic. Because I'm just, you know, quite blind. Oh, yeah, we'll, yeah, it'll be lovely. We'll get, we'll decorate it. Yeah, don't worry. Don't worry. So... It came and I was thinking, oh, bloody hell, I says, Melanie, I said, I can't have to fess up here. I think it's going to be hellish big. You know, that garden we had planned for the summer ain't going to work. So, but actually when it came, you know, it's such a lovely hut. That's the thing. Do you know what I mean? You cannot fault the hut and the guys, you know, the guy builds them and it's lovely. It is like solid. You know, it's the actual, it's tongue and groove. So it's not kind of overlapping, you know, that kind of lap wood. It's an inch thick. You know, just the boards are an inch thick. It's like, I think they're kind of three inch or maybe two by three, you know, that kind of struts inside. The thing is solid. It's tantalized and it's gorgeous. Do you know what I mean? And got a friend, my friend at work who's an electrician. I've had, you know, I've been prepping Colin for, oh, well, it's kind of, I, I guess it's now since like the beginning of December, to get electrics in there and the internet. And it's funny, you kind of think when it comes, ah, it's finished. But there's so much more work to do. So just, I think last, when I'm recording this show there now, I've had power and internet. <laughs> and the internet is in. And I've had that for about three days there now. But it took call. Three days to kind of get all that sorted out. You know, you're kind of drilling through kitchen walls out into the back. And this is kind of an old house, you know what I mean? So it's kind of, it's built on, kind of, I don't know what the found, not foundations, but the walls. Do you know what I mean? He came with like a drill bit and I said, Colin, I ain't going to go through that wall, mind you. You need one much bigger than, no, oh, no, we'll get, we'll get it, get it, get it through. Got it in, <laughs> nowhere near. I had to get like this huge drill bit. And just that, you know what I mean? And then we're kind of, I had, pipes already buried you know like protect the cable in pipes so you put your cables through these pipes so it doesn't get like if you get digging up ever later well we couldn't get the actual cables through them pipes so i had to dig all this trench again oh man it just went on and on and then we were kind of getting it all done it just like say a couple of days three days all like the exciting bits or the good bits switch it on was always like the last possible 20 minutes before we had to, you know, let's call it a day. It's pitch black. We can't see what we're doing here. And on the second day, trying to get the internet to work, man, we must have spent about three hours because we had it all cabled up and, you know, tiny little boxes, junction boxes and all that. And you're putting all these like blue, dead fine little blue, green, yellow wires in. And just every time, you know, we got it to like the kitchen, which is an extension. Then we just couldn't seem to get this thing working into the hut. And we just, it just by trial and error, kind of, you have all the kind of wires, I'm no kind of technical, you know, you have all the wires going into one side of like a junction box, then they all come out of another, you know, that's the little kind of square box you, you put your kind of Ethernet cable, Ethernet cable in. Well, when we did it like that, it wouldn't work. But if you put, we found if we put all the cables going into, say, the left hand side one and none coming out. You know what I mean? So the ones coming in from the house or going from the house and the ones going out to the hut are all in kind of the one chock side. Bingo, it worked. And haven't lost kind of speed or anything like that. So got, you know, we're up and running there and I've got like 
wall sockets on. I've got five dual wall sockets on there. Power's in there. Tumble dryer, freezer. And I've now ordered a kind of shed alarm. I'm getting all kind of security measures up there as well because that'll be a thing. So it is now... Well, I'm guessing it. That's it. It's done. Do you know what I mean? We've got. I kind of see before I can kick off. You know, what I, like I say, I mentioned on this kind of the film. Not the film. Where am I getting film from? The kind of meta talk in December, January. It's for certain projects. Do you know what I mean? And there's one more thing, like part of the puzzle, before I can kind of launch one of them. And the other one, not take long at all. You know what I mean? I just got to get my ass up and start doing them. You know what I mean? So. That's that's where we are with the hut there now. And like I say, I was in there yesterday doing a little bit of these kind of project things or getting them all ready and that. And it's lovely, to be quite honest. <laughs> I've got, you know, I've got the little kind of dog's bed. You didn't know that, but I've got a little dog, Ralph, now, the, the kind of working cocker spaniel. I've got a little bed in there and he just straight in there sits with us, you know what I mean? So, and like I say, it's a, it's a fair size. Do you know what I mean? It is like a kind of, and it's, Everyone should have, you know, a kind of like a bolt hole. And this is just honestly, it's just like when it's just getting a little bit kind of hectic now in the house, you know, I'm getting on into life, you know, just where's your father? He's in the hood. That's where I'll be. So that is the kind of where we are now at the, the kind of, you know, the stage. Everything's really done. Everything's sorted. Yeah, I could keep on going on, you know, because I'm now thinking and it costs just. <laughs> just spirals out of all you know what I mean what you know you can alright I'll save that and save that and put that away for the hut and then you think oh, right right you've got to get this got to get, get and you know everyone's saying oh you get one of them because then next and out I've heard that many that saying next and out so many times and my dad used it yesterday my stepdad Mick came in oh young and young and you've got to get some I oh, get some of this to protect these winners next and out you'll get them in wicks next and out and if I kind of added all these next and notes up that people are saying, get that, get that. Because now we've we've got this, we've had to kind of prepare the land. We've dug up so much. We're now having to get guys in to kind of lay the whole new flagstone area. Do you know what I mean? Because all that kind of God. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. It's gone what we had. We're now having to kind of move our guard where we kind of sit and have our food outside and stuff like that. And it's just like, oh man, what have I started? So 
There we go. That's the my little kind of journey with the kind of workshop. Starships over HQ is what I'm calling it. Lovely, lovely shed. <laughs> so, have a fab time, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>